You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. You will see me again, and I will bring you all down. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So we are thrilled to welcome the award-winning, number one internationally best-selling author, Joanne Harris, to our podcast as part of our Women of Myth series. Hi, Joanne. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to have you. Joanne is the author of over 29 novels and novellas for adults and children. She has sold millions of copies of her books, which include Chocolat, which was turned into an Oscar-winning film, and the fantasy series Ruin Marks and Ruin Light, The Gospel of Loki and The Testament of Loki, and many, many others. Her most recent books are A Narrow Door, Honeycomb, which is a stunning collection of haunting illustrated fairy tales, and The Strawberry Thief, which is a new addition to the Chocolat series. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and I'm sorry I've probably butchered saying Chocolat three times. <laughs> uh, that's just fine. I'm so glad to be here. Great to be talking to you. So when did your fascination with mythology and folklore begin? I was very young. Um, I'm the child of uh, a rather strict French mother who banned all horror and sci-fi from the house. And I found from an early age that folklore and mythology was absolutely packed full of monsters and werewolves and, and other such things that would have been banned otherwise, but that I was somehow mysteriously allowed to read them because they counted as education. And so I got a lot of stealth 
horror and and other such unsuitable stuff under the door by by reading mythology. And I was particularly drawn to Norse myths, although I liked myths from all over the world. Well, I, I joined, I was allowed to join the public library at seven and I was very excited. And I arrived on my seventh birthday with my mother to, to join. And the librarian barred the door to the main library and showed me a shelf. And that was the children's library and said, you're only allowed to, to borrow these books. And so I, I, I read everything that was in the children's library. And finally, I got access to the adult library four years earlier than I should have been allowed. On the understanding that the librarian vetted the book that I would get. And I was only allowed one book a month. She would vet it decide if it was suitable. If it wasn't suitable, it went back and I had to wait another month to get another book. So it was the whole business was fraught with peril. And my mother and father used to go to the the market and do the shopping, leave me in the library for two hours. So I would speed read everything that I knew I couldn't get out. And then I would choose something with tremendous care. And then I would be quizzed on it when I brought it back. And so the whole business of going to the library was, you know, it was it was it was it was fraught with danger. But I remember there was there was this one book in the children's library called Thunder of the Gods by Dorothy G. Horsford. And it was a, a retelling of Norse myths. And I, I took this book out so many times that eventually she would see me coming and just sigh and reach for this book on the shelf because she knew that I would be wanting it again. And when I first uh, wrote my Norse myths books, they were really meant for my daughter because I wanted to introduce her to these things that had fired my imagination as a child. And I looked for this book by Dorothy Horsford and I couldn't find it. It was out of print and the library was shut and I just couldn't find a copy. And so I went online and looked into some used book uh, stores and, and found there was a copy there. And I was very excited and I ordered it and it arrived. And I looked at it and I thought, this looks a bit familiar. And then I opened it and it still had the Barnsley Library stamp inside and my little library card tucked into the pocket. And these are the sort of strange pieces of synchronicity that happen in the life of a reader. And I just thought it was amazing. And so I, I, I still have that copy. And, and I sometimes bring it when I do a talk on, uh, on, on my, my rune books just to show that, that these, these little bits of magic do happen and that books can actually shape the course of a life. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. That's incredible. Was this like an an online store like you you got it online just kind of anywhere or was it like local no i think it was a version of book hive or something like that it was some years ago so it won't have been that but uh yes it was it was one of those find this book stores and and a number of bookshops subscribed to it and so i don't remember which bookshop it must have been something probably something local because when the library shut they probably sold all their stock off or gave it to to sellers and and that's how I got it. That's an incredible story, unbelievable. It's so sad that these you know small town libraries shutting down makes me sad as well. Uh, me too, absolutely. But unfortunately, it's been the truth of of this government. We've we've lost an awful lot of libraries. Where we're still losing them, we're still fighting for them. But it's a bit of a losing battle where all the arts funding has gone, and it, it's very it's very sad. Norse mythology is full of epic female characters. Who's your favorite? Loki. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Loki can be any gender at all. Loki is interesting in that he can be he can be male, he can be female, he can be a horse, he can be a bird, he can be absolutely anything. He's he's effectively a, a spirit of of chaos and disunity, and this is how I wrote him in my books. But 
he is also one of the classic trickster characters. And within the whole of the Norse pantheon, he is the trigger for everything that happens. All the, the adventures that we remember from Norse myths are somehow usually kicked off by something that Loki has done or hasn't done, or that he has been involved with. Uh, he is the catalyst for drama. And um, yes, and, and as such, he's part of a, a rich trickster tradition that, 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 that runs through pretty much all mythologies everywhere. Most world mythologies have a trickster figure somewhere. Absolutely. And also people like trickster figures. People like those stories. And, and as a young child reading these, these retold Norse tales, one of the things that attracted me more than, shall we say, the Greeks or the Romans was the profound relatability of the characters. The fact that you know these gods who had these, these tremendous powers we're also capable of making absolutely awful life choices, falling in love with the wrong people, playing insanely cruel practical jokes on each other. Um, and we're back to Loki again, of course. But all of this makes them very interesting and, and much less distant than, than the Greeks and the, and the Romans on their mountains. Of course, I mean, this is partly because those tales were bowdlerized by the, the Victorians and we don't get them in their full juicy detail. But but the Norse myths have something else, I think, and, and particularly living as I do in Yorkshire, which is really on the, on the Viking flight path. There's so much in the language and the culture and the inheritance of the region that I live in that, that still reminds me of that culture, that it felt, it felt as if it was very close to home. That is so fascinating that tricksters are kind of like the catalysts for action in so many of these mythologies and stories. I never really thought of it that way, but it's so true. Yes, because otherwise, without without Loki, most of Norse myth would have been mostly the gods of Asgard living in Asgard and not doing very much, apart from, you know, fighting giants and this kind of thing. But the real spirit of the conflict that drives the drama of this small community is, is because this, this figure of disunity and discord is there right in the heart of this little besieged community, which is up there in Asgard fighting giants and, and demons, but also fighting each other. And, you know, Loki refuses in a lot of ways, like, he's the ultimate outsider who refuses to conform in the ways that they want him to conform a lot of times. And I think some of his conflict comes from there. Yes, absolutely. He's, he's not only racially different, but he is also gender fluid at a time where pretty much the worst insult that you could give was to call a, a man womanish. Loki doesn't care. He just embraces it. He goes, OK, yes, I'm a woman. Yes, I'm a female horse. Why the hell not? I'm going to give birth now. Everything he does subverts what the patriarchal order of this community seems to dictate. And yet, of course, there is this mystery. Why is he even there? Why has Odin brought him there? If presuming that you know, Odin can see the future, which he can, and knows that Loki is going to precipitate the end of the world, why has he sworn blood brotherhood with him and brought him into this community knowing that he's going to cause trouble? And this is not an answer that is given by any of the writings that we know. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the Gospel of Loki in the first place, because I wanted to know the answer to this question. And I had a theory. One of the, the nice things for any writer about Norse myth is that the source material is relatively small compared to the huge material we have about Greeks and Romans and their mythology, because the Norse people didn't really have a tradition of writing anything down. And so we're looking at the remnants of an oral tradition that was transcribed 
by Christian scholars after the Christianization of Scandinavia. And so we, we've got fragments and the fragments we can play with and build on as, as authors and creators and, and children with imagination. Are there fragments that come down to us not from a Christian lens or is it all filtered through like the monasteries? Well, I, I think, you know, Snorri is very sympathetic to his source material. And he's also not your typical Christian scholar. He, he's got quite a broad view, but he is, he is writing within a certain world picture and he's trying to establish a kind of world picture which, which is effectively about order, about bringing order. And so the narrative that he writes down is very much about the gods as a force for order. And this is because he was living in a world where, where he saw Christianity as, as a civilizing force over pagans who didn't know any better. And when we look at the way that Norse myths have been reinvented over the centuries, one of the interesting things to me about them is how different periods of time have used the same myths to establish different agendas which were interesting and important to them at the time. There was a big revival of Norse myth in the 17th century. And that wasn't so much about establishing order, it was about world conquest and about the discovery of far-off lands. And so there was this this new narrative about the Vikings as great travellers, because, of course, that was what was happening. And there was, there was a narrative going on within the current society about discovering new worlds and this kind of thing. And, and this was where the, the term Viking was incorrectly adopted to mean members of the whole Scandinavian uh, region, which, which we know, of course, that's not really what Viking means. And the people we call Vikings didn't refer to themselves as Vikings any more than people born in the British Isles refer to themselves as pirates, even though they were, they were British pirates. But, but yes, it was a narrative about conquest of other countries. And that was where some of this myth of the Vikings came. And then, then the Victorians reinvented the Vikings, but the Victorians had, had already established their empire. And so they were much more interested in deeds of heroism. It was the whole kind of operatic reinvention of the Norse myths with the idea of heroism and good and evil, that kind of narrative. And then the 20th century had its own narratives and they were very much about people and the complexities of people. And so the 20th century gave us the beginnings of the anti-hero narrative and superheroes, of course. The Americans have reinvented the Norse gods as superheroes because America has a strong core of superhero narrative. And so you've got these, these myths that have been kept alive throughout centuries of reinventing and revisiting. And the fact that they're still there proves that they are still relatable and still flexible and still interesting enough to, to give people new ways of looking at them. Absolutely. The character of Loki, I think about the movies that were made about Loki recently. The Marvel movies. And I wonder, I wonder what the ancients would think about our interpretation of Loki specifically. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's interesting. I think Loki is one of those figures who ages very well because he's driven by something which is essentially understandable to everybody throughout the ages. This idea of defying authority, this idea of, of not fitting in, and also the idea that intelligence can trump physical power. These things are at the heart of all trickster narratives, and we like it because effectively Loki is in spite of his powers, he is, he is an underdog, shouting in the face of a patriarchy that he doesn't agree with and doesn't understand. And he fits in very well with the anti-hero narratives of the, of the 20th century. And he's also a character of tremendous charm. 
from Snorri onwards, we we see Loki as essentially a charming and volatile and sometimes deeply destructive and self-destructive, but also a very funny character. We tend to like characters that make us laugh, even if they're doing awful things. And Loki is very often doing both at once. I remember reading your book, The the Gospel of Loki, which retells the, the Norse myths from Loki's point of view. And one of the biggest things about it was you're reading Loki tell you sort of his rationale behind why he does some things. And it's really funny. The humor of Loki comes through so much in addition to just being beautifully written and all that and like getting a really good grasp on the stories because Norse mythology, kind of like Egyptian mythology in some ways, has very... um time and, and order and chaos kind of go all over the place because of the way in which they were written down and what was interesting and, and valuable to the civilizations and also the chroniclers. But the biggest thing about Loki is there's just so much joy in that book and so much humor, which sometimes I think you can lose in a lot of retellings is Loki is just really fun. He is. He is absolutely really fun. And it's clear to me, reading Snorri, who I love, and also some of the associated texts of the same the same time or a, a few uh, decades later, that they are written in a very self-consciously grandiose way. There is this idea that they are writing down epic stories. And quite a few of the inheritors of those stories, people like Tolkien, for instance, kept that same tone. Whereas I think that the oral tradition that it came from must have been very different. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to to take the Norse myths away from the scholars and to give it back to the people in a way that that allowed me to use vernacular, to play with humour, and to look at some of the, you know, the frankly dirty humour that that is there in, in some of those stories and to just play with it because it's clear that this this is where the heart of those myths are to me. And there's also, I mean, what, what struck me when I was um, I was thinking about writing the Gospel of Loki. One of the things that struck me was that it had never been done before to write in Loki's voice from his perspective. But also what struck me was that in the source material, there is very little from Loki's point of view. Much of the the writing is from this kind of third person narrator going, ah, well, Loki was evil and therefore he did this. And you think, well, that makes no sense. Loki just being evil doesn't cut it for me. There has to be another reason. Okay, what was the motivation for doing this, this this act of self-harm? when you've got a character who is smart and and who should know better. So there was that. But there was also the fact that Loki very rarely speaks directly to the reader. There's there's just one there's one piece called Loka Senna, which is which is a very beautiful um and very funny piece of writing. It's it's a flighting which was a kind of it was a kind of tradition among the Norse people to have this this sort of highly intelligent, highly mercurial, ritual insulting and and it could take some some quite fanciful forms. And so in this case, basically, Loki gets drunk and turns up at a party where everybody has been invited but him. And he ritually insults everybody he sees there. And because he knows everybody so well, and because he's clever enough to be able to get under the skin of everybody there, he manages to do that in this, this completely self-destructive way, because he knows that having done this, he's going to be persona non grata in Asgard and he's going to have no friends. But he does it anyway because he can't stop himself. And he goes to Thor and he says, you know, Thor, you're a complete thicky. And by the way, do you remember that time you dressed up as a girl? And he goes to he goes to all the other gods. He goes to Tyr and says, you know, by the way, you're the god of war and you've only got one arm. What a loser. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes to Freya, goddess of love and beauty. And he goes, you know what? You slept with your brother and you fart in bed. <laughs> 
it. He absolutely punctures everybody. And it's cruel and it's horrible, but it's also absolutely hilarious. And I thought, right, that's the voice that I want to use. That's the voice that I want Gospel of Loki to be in. That's incredible. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question about Loki and gender. Um, What does the way Loki's gender is portrayed tell us about the Norse culture and people and how they view gender roles in their society? Well, it's an it's an excellent question, and it's also quite a complicated one because I think we've got to peel away quite a lot of layers of assumption that we have. I think we tend to think of the Norse people as being very macho and aggressive, and it's not really true. That's something that the Victorians gave us. And yes, there was a certain level of antagonism to effeminacy in men, and there are several words in Old Norse that that are huge insults that that basically just mean you're a girly. But to balance that, there there was a strong tradition of the matriarch within the community. Um, Women had had more rights than we expect. Women went to battle. You know, we have uncovered caches of burial treasure and bones and weapons clearly belonging to warrior chieftains and we've we've identified now some of the bones as being women's bones so it's not as simple as this was a warrior race they went off a viking and the women stayed at home and did whatever it, it's not really like that at all that there seems to have been a much greater sense of of the value of women and also the the warrior nature of some women because you know we were talking about freya and i do have a bit of an apology to make to freya uh, because in the Gospel of Loki, which is written in Loki's voice, Freya does not get a great a great deal. Uh, Loki dislikes her and despises her, and she certainly despises him. And so you don't get to see her at her best. But she is not just the goddess of love and desire and beauty. She is also a warrior in her own right, and she has a warrior aspect, uh, which is genuinely frightening. And she has this this side to her, which Snorri doesn't say much about. But when you look at leavings and inscriptions on stones and the way that she was worshipped, it's clear that she wasn't just a pretty face, that that she was also instrumental in waging war, in being a a figure of war. So there are these two faces to to feminine characters, which I don't think the the tradition of retelling the stories has picked up very much. And one of the things that I did in, in Gospel of Loki and some of the other books was that I looked at some of the the neglected female figures. And there's one particular one whose name is Gulveig Heed, and she turns up in... She's briefly mentioned in the Poetic Edda, um, and she's, she's briefly mentioned in Snorri. And it's funny because, to me, reading those texts, it really looks like she's being set up for a big role. She turns up when the gods of Asgard are still finding their place and the Vanir and the Aesir are still kind of at war. And they have a, a, a slightly precarious truce going, but they haven't yet built Asgard. And this woman turns up, this woman of power, um, and she is head to foot clothed in gold, and she is greedy for gold, and she's, she's, she is a strong, aggressive character, and she defies the gods, demands gold from them, demands allegiance. And they kill her, and they throw her into the fire, and they do this three times, and she comes back to life she then declares war against them, says, I will destroy you effectively, and disappears into the distance. And we never hear about her again. And you know, there, there's this idea that she will come back to destroy them at Ragnarok or probably before. 
but she doesn't get much of a look in her, really. She, she sort of vanishes. And I got the feeling that either the stories had been lost or Snorri himself felt that she was not a character that he wanted to explore, that she was too much of a challenge, that she didn't fit in with his narrative of order, that what he really wanted was for Loki to be the bad guy because that made much more sense. And so Gullveig, he'd get sidelined and she just doesn't reappear. And so in, in my version, I made her a much more major character and she keeps coming back because actually I think she's great and she's mysterious and, and I wanted to know more about her and I couldn't find anything. And so, so I made it up instead and, and shoehorned it into my retelling, which is not just a retelling, but actually there is quite a lot of invented stuff that I've managed to, to squeeze in there to try to give it a, a more a more understandable narrative arc. But yes, I think I think Gulvekid is a really fine example of a female character within Norse myth who who hasn't been picked up on. I mean we hear endless stuff about Valkyries, but you know, she is she is the the ultimate big bad. And she doesn't make it to Ragnarok somehow. She didn't set her alarm? <laughs> So it's a mystery. You know, you see that a lot, depending on, again, I think it's it's who's writing it down and the sort of narrative they were trying to give you, because we've noticed this a lot with different goddesses from different places, where you get some of their story, but it doesn't quite fit. So like, like we had a Muisca goddess who is amazing. She defies the patriarchy. She goes against the, the ruling god who's a bit tyrannical and everything must be his way. And she's this goddess who gets turned into an owl. She's a goddess of parties and dancing and music and drunkenness. But this is the only mention of her. But we know that she's still there defying the patriarchy. But that's the only story. Isn't that interesting? I think this this probably has happened in, in a number of different mythologies because we still tend to have men writing history and men rewriting mythology and applying their own patriarchal rules. And I do think that, you know, the Vikings are particularly likely to suffer from this because they've had so many reinventions and they have been they've been largely misunderstood historically. I mean, even until 40 years ago, people were still using the Codex Regius as a history book, and it really isn't. It's 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 a kind of amalgam of histories and rumours and folklore and legend, but it is absolutely not the history of, of the Scandinavian countries in any shape or form. And, and yet there has been until fairly recently no question that most of it was probably true. And so I, I think a lot of what we think we know about the history of the Vikings is, is, is myth. And so we have to peel away that and look at the much more interesting facts, in fact, which, which show a much more complex civilization. I, I, did, um, I was lucky enough to see the, uh, the Viking exhibition um, in London uh, a few years ago, and, and I, I wrote a piece on it. And it was the, it was the largest exhibition of um, Scandinavian and Icelandic treasures and memorabilia, whatever, ships, all kinds of things that, 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 that there has ever been in the country. And I, I wrote a piece about it. And I wrote something about the, the religion of the Norse people. And, and it, it was clear that, that the Christianization of Scandinavia evolved over some time because they were not especially inclined to embrace the Christian God initially. And, and so it was clear that there was some heavy lifting that had to be done. And there was one piece that particularly struck me, and it was a carving of Jesus on the cross. 
and he is holding Thor's hammer under his arm. I just imagined a group of elders trying to persuade their younger warriors that actually this Jesus guy, he was totally kick-ass. And look here, he's got Thor's hammer. And do you know, a minute later, he probably got down from that cross and killed everybody with his hammer because, you know, that's, that's what Thor would do. And obviously, Jesus would do the same. And I can see that narrative evolving from there. And, and I'm sure that's exactly what happened. So, yes, they, they were not just conquered and then suddenly embraced Christianity. There was obviously a great deal of thought that went into this and a lot of a lot of extra storytelling that went on to make it acceptable and palatable to them. Absolutely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I had a question about the lens that we get these um, these stories through and how that applies to how goddesses were depicted and how women in the stories were depicted. We cover Freya in our book, Women of Myth, that's coming out. And um, one of the things that I was finding was that some aspects of her story may have been Christian-imposed messages about her promiscuity and how that is negative and things like that. And I was wondering, are there other examples where it feels like the Christian monks are imposing things on the female characters in these myths that were not there before? Well, I think they imposed gender roles generally. There was this, this feeling that it wasn't really part of their world picture to have women who were warriors, women who had aggressive natures. And so the ones who did, yes, I think I think Freya is the, the best example of this. Freya is is also made into this 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 character who randomly sleeps with dwarves to get a necklace and thereby gives Odin um power over her. And there is also the idea that she is also somehow seducing has seduced Odin in the same way and and telling the rest of the gods that she has done this is, is his revenge on her. There's a way of, uh, of depicting this, 
this character struggle between them, making it all about sex and conquest, which I think doesn't quite fit into my idea of what that culture was like. I don't believe that the the, the Icelandic and the Scandinavian culture did have this this hoodoo over who you slept with. I think this this is very much a Christian invention and. I also think that Freya herself is an amalgam of several goddess figures. And there were a number of goddesses, a large number of goddesses, really, and they're only named. We don't really know anything more about them. I can't imagine that they had no stories about them in the oral tradition. I think those stories were withheld, principally because they didn't fit the narrative. And so it, it's, it's very frustrating to a scholar to see this happening because you you you, you read some of the, the sagas and, and you, you see these named goddesses, but there's nothing but their name and sometimes the name of the hole that they lived in. But otherwise, there's there's nothing much. And the, the you know, the ones that survive are, are Frigg, who is, again, one wonders exactly what the relationship between Frigg and Freya originally was. Were they one? Were they two? It's a little difficult to tell, but Frigg is sort of sidelined as a mother figure, and she doesn't have much of a role apart from to grieve for Balder. And we've got Nana, who is the wife of Balder, and she has no role at all except to die on Balder's funeral pyre, which seems a bit of a wet thing to do for a Norse goddess. Uh, we have Gefion, who was clearly an, a, an interesting figure, but we don't really have any information about her. We've got Skadi, who is a great figure, and we do have a story about her. We have the story of how Skadi wanted revenge against the gods for the death of her father and ended up being palmed off with a husband that she didn't want, and so went off to basically live in the wilds, conveniently disappearing from sight. I mean, who hasn't run away? <laughs> to the woods for a while <laughs> who chooses a man by his feet anyway but uh, but i liked Sidi and I, I used her i used her a lot because you know that there was there was some characterization there and there was a there was another fierce angry woman fierce angry women are quite prominent actually in norse myth if you let them be but usually they just have the one story and then they disappear from sight because they don't seem to be part of the, the, the narrative of the gods of Asgard. The goddesses of Asgard are much less well represented. And then we have Aiden, of course, who is a tremendously powerful goddess. You know, she is effectively in charge of their health, their youth, and their ability to, to continue as they are unchanged by time. But she is only ever really represented as either a kind of vaguely hippieish, benevolent dispenser of pieces of apple or as a victim that has to be rescued. When she is then kidnapped and taken away and the apples are taken away, then, you know, Aiden, Aiden has to be rescued. But she doesn't do very much to rescue herself. And I get the feeling that this is not necessarily a piece of narrative that was part of the oral tradition. It's something that may well have been put in there later when the stories were being retold to make them more familiar, to make them more in keeping with the indigenous folk tales that, that we already had. It's a theory and 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 I think it's it's one that's worth looking at. Well and also because of the change that Christianity at this point in time was trying to sort of like enact upon the people that it was effectively colonizing and, and changing. I think the stories that were not necessary to the message they were trying to get across, which didn't, you know, show women as mothers or the Madonna horror complex, which you get with Freya or, you know, more martial women or women who are outside of, you know, you've got the woman who 
runs off into the woods after choosing a bad husband. It's like, okay, so these are the things that women can do. Whereas when you think about what their society would have been like, and I haven't done a massive deep dive, but you would have women who were warriors, and then you would also have women who were ruling and brokering trade and things like that when their husbands were off making war or traveling because the Vikings traveled or, you know, the Norse people traveled quite far. And they couldn't crumble because the men weren't there. So that must mean that women had strong roles and they were supporting the society. They did. And they could own property and they could be they could be chiefs. Um, they could pretty much do everything that men did. And this idea that, that women were were constrained, that women were, were somehow subordinate, is it seems completely wrong, um, according to what we, we now know of that culture. And, and I think it's slightly appalling that we were, we were allowed to, to keep on believing something just because we were told that it was true about a culture that was right there, right next door. We could just have asked them. Iceland has been sitting there for a long time, just waiting to tell us about its history. And, and until relatively recently, we weren't listening. We were just listening to what the Victorians had told us, which is just shocking and, and very typical of us, I'm afraid. But the other thing I was going to say is we cover Freya and we also cover Ishtar in Women of Myth. And the thing that I find so interesting with Freya and with Ishtar and Aphrodite and Inanna is these are primarily we think of them as goddesses of beauty and goddesses of fertility and goddesses of love. But they each had dual aspects and they were they had a warrior aspect as well. And it seems to me really fascinating that these women who were both goddesses of what we think of as, as love were also war goddesses. I think it says something about a lot of these ancient cultures and how they viewed sort of the role of sex and death and violence. Sounds very familiar. Yes, absolutely. I think there is there is an element here. There's a story about power and about sex as power and also sex as magic. And the idea that a woman's magic is tremendously powerful, much more so than a man's magic, because not only can... Can women do what anything that men do? They can also do these these things that men absolutely can't do. And these mysterious things to do with childbirth and, and conception, the creation of life and the taking away of life. And, and I think all of this is, is, it's a powerful message about what it's like to be a woman. And it's, it's there in a lot of mythologies. And I think Christianity tried very hard to erase it in all kinds of different ways or to, to rewrite it in a way that, that robbed women of this power and this magic. But I think a pre-Christian society had, had a lot of it there. And, and it was something that was taken very much for granted. There would have been no surprise that a goddess of love would also be involved in war and death, because actually love and death have historically always been close. Freya was a goddess of sorcery, as well as fertility and love and war. And um, one of the things I came across when I was researching her was her connection to the vulva, the, the sorceresses, like the ancient Norse sorceresses. Do you know anything about them and their role in communities? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, even the word sorceress, I think, is a bit misleading because it implies sorcery within a christian way of thinking is is i think very different from the sorcery of the the icelandic and the scandinavian pantheon i think the vulva were very much about seeing and shamanism rather than than sorcery in the sense that the christians understand it and the summoning of demons and this kind of thing which is which is completely completely not what vulva were about i think this is this is partly about wisdom and vision and the different kinds of vision that, that vulva and women generally are capable of. So yes, it, it's frustrating that we don't know more about them, but they were definitely part of life. 
And when we when we read about about vulva, they are nearly always foretelling or foreseeing the future in one way or another, imparting wisdom in very much the way that you know the oracle at Delphi might have done. Just find so many interesting things here. We we did a large section on Julius Caesar's subjugation of Vercingetorix and the Celtic peoples, and we did the British, the Roman invasion of, of Britain. And what you can see here in the different cultures is there was some overlap in people's roles and their mythology and their stories. A lot of it we don't know, but you know, even just seeing graves of women warriors, like we know there were Scythian warrior women. We know that Thracians also had quite a martial. They had warrior women. So lots of people had these warrior women and these things in their culture that overlapped. And it's just such a shame that, like, we don't know any more about it than we do. Yes, well, this this is it. And I, I think, you know, that's one of one of the things I've written about a lot in my, my, my rune books and my Loki books is is about the shifting nature of history and how how history is not about objective fact. It's about who gets to write the story. And what they choose to write in the story and who they choose to make the hero and who they choose to leave out. And because we live in a country which has been revisited and rewritten by lots of different invading cultures, we have a whole series of layers of history hiding different kinds of history. And one of one of the things I've been exploring, this is tangential to this, it's not so much about Norse myths, but it is about folklore, um, is the child ballads which are a collection of, uh, you'll, you'll know what this is, but a collection of, of wonderful, mostly fragmentary ballads going from very early days, the 12th, the 13th century, right up to the, the 17th century, but which they don't so much tell history, but they do talk about what was interesting and important to the people at the time. And I, I've often felt that history had at least two lanes. One is the lane of the people who get to write the story, the kings, the priests, the clerics, the people with education, and this is this is the history that gets written. But there is also the secret history of the people, which lives on in folklore and songs and sayings and nursery rhymes and country traditions. And this is at least as important and at least as telling when it comes to exploring a culture and, and where it where it came from and where it's leading. It is, it is absolutely fascinating, and it just makes me so interested in what we can find of Norse mythology that doesn't come through a Christian lens, because, and I'm sure that there is not much, you know, but, like, the non-Christian version just interests me so much of anything, really, you know, because we get that lens elsewhere, too. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. 
They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have any favorite female monsters in Norse mythology? And what can they tell us about Nordic people's fears and anxieties about women and their place in society? Or, you know, maybe that's just the Christian lens showing. Well, I, I think the Christian lens needs investigating and we, we need to try to take it off as much as we can. But I think I think Gullveig Heed is a very interesting character, partly because she is so frightening that she has been written out almost entirely, except for her first appearance. But partly also it's because her first appearance is so dramatic and interesting and it's, it is linked so much to a desire for power and effectively she beats the gods. You're there, there in all their, their godlike splendour. She is alone in their halls, demanding various things from them, demanding allegiance, demanding gold. They are absolutely struck silent by her audacity and her greed and her refusal to step down, even though she's massively outnumbered. And they, they kill her three times and she comes back to life. And there's something powerful about the number three anyway. There is something that sets you up there for something. It could be that she is some kind of vestigial version of the triple goddess, that they've killed each of her aspects once, but she is still there. So she's even more powerful than this. Who knows where she comes from exactly? Her, her, her name implies gold and and roughly translates as the golden one i think my uh, my old icelandic isn't great but it's it's one of the things that that it could mean but she is she is clearly a, a creature of tremendous power uh, both psychic power and also magical power and and i really like her her wonderful entrance and her defiant exit where she says you will see me again and i will bring you all down it seems to me that she is the voice of all these angry, aggressive, anti-patriarchal warrior women within within mythologies worldwide. And, and this is one of the reasons she's my favourite. And, and I have written about her and, and I've invented stories around her to try to, to match the stories that I'm absolutely sure existed, but which have been suppressed because they didn't, they didn't quite fit the story at the time that was being told. Do you think Golvekid, because of the connection to gold, might be an aspect of Freya? Quite possibly. I mean, I've, I've often thought that Freya was a kind of mashup of a number of different figures. And even possibly that Frey and Freya could conceivably at one point have been the same. The, the fact that the, the masculine aspects of Frey were, were kind of separated from Freya because it was just too much for one, one complex female character to have. I think it's 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 quite possible that a lot of these figures are compounds or complexes of different characters. But yes, she she could well have been an aspect of Freya. She could have been an aspect of Freya the sorceress, for instance, because of course we we do know that Freya liked gold, and that she was she was willing to sell her body for gold. It, it could be that actually these two stories are closer than we think. That one is a much more a much more kind of aggressive story about Gullveig Heed's greed for gold actually 
you know, attacking the whole of the gods, uh, whereas Freya's greed for gold, if you like, is much more destructive of Freya. It could mean it could be that one story is kind of the shadow of the other, that you know, Gullveig Heed's story is then echoed by Freya's story, which has a Christian subtext of, you see, this is what happens, ladies, when you get too greedy for gold, you end up like Freya, shamed for having slept with these dwarves. It could be that there's a bit of that going on. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting theory to follow. I think I think it's really fascinating. And I feel like my problem with Freya's main story with that gold necklace is like, and I grew up very, very Catholic. You can just see the Christian lens there so much. And I just, the shaming of Freya, just like, it feels like taking so much power from her. It makes no sense either, because in a world where Odin has a magic ring, which makes as much gold as you like, um, the idea of, of, of having to, you know, go to all the trouble of finding dwarves and then sleeping with them and, and then doing all sorts of unspeakable things just to have a necklace just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so, it's very clear that there is a symbolism going on here and that there is a, a slightly clumsy moralizing also going on. But, but you know, myths, myths and legends don't always make sense because they are predicated on prior knowledge of the audience. The idea that actually, you know, you could tell these stories in any order at all because everyone knew them all already. And so there was no need to establish a story arc because why would you have one? And this is why when you when you read Snorri and you look at Snorri's vestigial story arc, you, you see that, that time doesn't behave properly here, that certain things couldn't have happened at this point because that hadn't happened, and yet so-and-so still has the magical weapon that they acquired at this point in time. None of that matters, really, when you're talking about an oral tradition because these stories can just be picked up at any point at all. Obviously, when you're retelling them and it's not the oral tradition and you're writing them down, then you have to try to, to give them a sense and and by doing that, you're already imposing some part of yourself on on the pantheon. It's inevitable. It happens every time anybody puts pen to paper. Question about Freya and the dwarves again. Sorry, I'm a little stuck on this. She sleeps with three dwarves, right? Was it three or four? It might have been four. There are, there are different versions of this story. Because I was just going back to the to the other goddess and thinking like, oh, that's a, that's a really symbolic that it's three again. Yeah, it might have been four, but I, I don't remember. That was one of the the stories that we included in Women of Myth. And um, I definitely talked about at the end how this could have been a Christian monk giving an opinion about Freya sleeping with people. Yes, because actually the goddess of, of, of love is going to sleep with people and she does sleep with, with a number of people and it's it's hinted that she even sleeps with her brother and that's also fine somehow mysteriously. So why these dwarves should have been particularly um, shameful is, is, is another question for the archive really. But yes, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The fact that a goddess who is, who is actually a goddess of sexuality should be shamed for her own sexuality. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's to me, it's clearly a bit of a Christian insert there, you know, just to make sure that people don't people don't listen to these stories and start getting ideas that they can be like Freya. Whereas actually Freya's whole message is that you can be like Freya. I thought it was so interesting what you said earlier too about um, how Freya and Freya may have indeed been the same deity at some point because we actually see um, gender non-conforming aspects of, of ancient goddesses. For example, Aphrodite. We did a whole episode about transgender Aphrodite, and um, Ishtar had this as well. And it tends to go back really far. And then in Aphrodite's case, what the Greeks would do with her is separate her from the aspects of her that they found 
inappropriate or disturbing in a goddess of love and fertility. Like, for example, her connection to war became her connection to Mars, and her connection to gender nonconforming aspects became her connection to her child, Hermaphroditus. Yes, because this isn't just about Christianity, it is also about patriarchal movements within society and the Greeks were very much that way inclined and so with the Romans and so it, it's we can't just blame Christianity. We, we we also have to look at this idea of of the evolution of gender and what it meant to people. And yes, the division of of aspects of gender which which were not originally divided. Right. It does seem like gender is a social construct, and there was a time when people were figuring that out and deciding that they needed to erase gender nonconforming aspects of various deities or separate them so that they could drive home that message of like, this is what gender is. Absolutely. And it was all about the imposition of power. It was about taking away the historical power of women, which when we look at matriarchal societies was very very much part of some of them that you know, that some some societies were absolutely matriarchal societies and it wasn't just about motherhood and the home it was it was about money it was about diplomacy it was about conquest the taking away of power from women who who were were seen to be already quite mysterious and dangerous enough with their inherent sorcery and their ability to give birth you know why should they also have this let's take it away from them and let's blame it on the gods Let's go, you know, this god or this goddess represents this aspect of you and it's for you but not for you because you're the wrong gender. I'm sure that this this was part of it too and, and that, that this happened obviously over centuries. And as the Greeks and the Romans established their various empires and the, the Romans were enormously influenced by the Greeks anyway and, and their thinking, you know, these, these matriarchal societies were effectively closed down one after the other and then boom, and came Christianity to, 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 to put the final nail in the coffin. Absolutely. And, and of course, I think that's really true what you said about how these divisions of gender that came up were about men asserting control over women and about ensuring that men and women were very separate things. There was a man, there was a woman. We erased gender nonconforming people because if you can move between genders, that lessens men's power over women and men's right to hold power at all. I, I think so. Although when you when we look at other other mythology systems, you know the idea that you could be gender nonconforming or gender fluid or you could flip gender was it was one of the superpowers that you associated with being a god. Exactly. Yeah, which is a, another thing that we uncovered and talked about in various myths. You know, there were other gods and goddesses who could change gender or could change gender for their worshippers. For example, Sibyl, the goddess, the Phrygian goddess who became a state cult in Rome who had transgender priestesses. I think part of Ishtar's worship, she had transgender priestesses as well. And there's a hymn to Ishtar that talks about how one of her powers is to change women into men and men into women for the glory and wonder of the people or something like that, which is quite incredible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and yes, and, and all of this fed beautifully into, into the society of the time. Here's a theory about, let's go back to our favorite Norse god and goddess Loki. What if Loki was never supposed to be the adversary in the first place? What if Loki was brought into Asgard knowingly by Odin, knowing that that fluidity and that ability to change and to effect change was actually important to them and would, would direct their evolution? What if, what if Ragnarok was not necessarily sparked off by, by Loki being the bad guy at all? Perhaps 
the Christians had their Lucifer, perhaps they needed to make Loki into a Lucifer character. And much of Loki's story has been lost or misunderstood because of that. And I think there's a lot of descriptions of Loki, like, we've learned this a lot. Whenever you see someone who has red hair in in mythology, uh, particularly in that area, generally they're bad. Or they're othered. Like the color red is used a lot in Mediterranean mythology and even history of different people to be like othering. Yes, it is. It is. And and we have now learned to associate it with danger and red flags and this kind of thing to such an extent that we now buy into this and it's it's a it's a visual marker for for all kinds of of things i don't remember anywhere actually in the the original myth that says that loki has red hair i think it's just implied that he is because he is a deity of fire to a certain extent it's it's implicit i think the first suggestion that he actually had red hair is in one of the 17th century retellings and later very much in the Victorian retellings and particularly the Arthur Rackham drawings actually that always represent him as having red hair. I think that was where it became a marker. Although there's a whole interesting digression that we could have into the whole business, the, the story of redheads within history because red hair was from the 16th and 17th century onwards associated with the devil. Redheads were believed to be inherently choleric, bad-tempered, potentially dangerous, and ugly too. It wasn't it wasn't admired physically, and so there was there was that, and and it was it was a big taboo for a long time. I've got a number of books, particularly in France, this was true. It, it was probably also true in Britain. It also, I think, carries a lot of recessive genes with it because it would, wouldn't it? Like a lot of people I know who are also redheads or who have redheads in their family, like. You'll see like both me and my brother, my brother's actually ambidextrous, but he leans more towards being left-handed. And then on the other side, I've got two aunts on both sides who are also left-handed, but aren't redheads. You see like a lot of things like curly hair coming down through sort of being a redhead. I can't remember, like I once like listed all the different things and I was like, oh, there's something there in genetics, I think. So you can imagine that like every time you're seeing a redhead coming along in a generation, it's kind of scary if you don't understand yeah exactly and and you think ah something has happened here there's you know you have these two brown-haired parents and suddenly you've got a red-headed child it was obviously the fairies that did it or it's obviously a sign from god that this is this is going to be a problem child thus the legend of the the bad redhead was born and and we love them now of course not only we appreciate red hair aesthetically, but also it's we appreciate the, the whole diversity of red hair and, and the different shades and, and the fact that it's now, it's rare. I was just thinking too, like that child also has, is left-handed and wasn't that also a mark of the devil? Like, were they not associated? I don't 100% know that genetically that's true, but I think like I have seen it a few times in different redheaded families and things like that where that happens. And if you think about the disruption of being left-handed in a world that even today is still made for right-handed people, biologically, we keep getting left-handed people because it is useful to the species and it innovates things, right? Yes, I mean, it did. The, the idea, the whole pervasive idea of left-handed people being somehow in league with the devil is is very much that's that's entrenched in a certain kind of thinking too i mean just the latin word for left being sinister is already you know it's it's already a sign that that it was it was misunderstood and and seen to be 
to be wrong. I want to go back a little bit to um, Loki as a destabilizing force in Asgard and also his gender fluidity. And I'm just thinking about Loki as like a, a representation of a more ancient gender fluid culture and how destabilizing that is to the patriarchy. And I, I don't know, I just find that interesting, like that there is one character like that who is the destabilizing seed at the foundation. Exactly. I think I think it's a, it's an interesting point, and it's a good theory, and it's it's one that's that's been thought of before. Uh, that 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 Loki is an older character. I mean, that there's another school of thought that thinks that he's a newer character brought in to replace Lucifer. But actually, I'm much more likely to agree with you and think that he is an older character. And also, even in 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 the original myth that Snorri writes down and the and the myths in the in the Codex Regius. He's not the youthful son of Odin that Marvel liked to to portray him as, although he does have some very youthful characteristics because of his trickster nature. He is of the same generation as Odin and Odin's brothers, or even older perhaps, which means that he has a whole history which precedes the history of Asgard, which we know nothing about. There, there is the story, of course, of Odin and his two brothers, Vili and Ve, and there, there is a, a theory here that Vili and Ve are basically also Loki, or some aspect or embodiment of Loki, which would, if, if that were true, imply that Loki was instrumental in the creation of the world with Odin. What was he doing around there? Where exactly did he come from? And that would make sense, because you know, Odin obviously owes him a debt because he's sworn blood brotherhood to him, which is a big deal. So they obviously have this past history which precedes the history of Asgard and which may very well be something to do with you know, the killing of the original giant Ymir and the creation of the world from his body. And so it, it could well be that, that actually Loki's story is so much older than, uh, than all of that and that he's, he's an inheritance of a previous trickster god tradition and, and that to me would would make much more sense than him just popping up in Asgard and wreaking havoc for no reason at all and being tolerated again for no reason at all he is tolerated I think because he is he's an ancient creature of tremendous power who comes from another civilization yeah like a member of a, of a more ancient pantheon from a religion that predates what we think of as the Norse religion Absolutely, because of course religions don't just pop up out of nowhere. They they are created over many centuries of contact with other cultures and borrowing of ideas from other cultures and figures from other cultures. In fact, there's there's a whole different thesis to be written about the Mayans and the Aztecs and their the similarity of their worldview to that of the Norse. And I know that some right wing some right-wing groups are keen on the idea that the Norse farmed out their religion with their travels and that they discovered America, but actually that the timing is a bit wrong in that theory because actually it, it would have been the other way round, if anything. It could well be that, that the Vikings who did reach uh, South America, who, who you know, that there are, that there's, there's a very interesting saga called the Saga of the Erdwellers, which suggests that the Norse people found their way to South America, found it very unwelcoming and then bogged off again. But, uh, you know, that there are some really interesting parallels between the, the Mayan and Aztec religions. Oh, they have a world tree, for instance, and, and the world is in the branches of the world tree. They have a god of thunder who has a hammer, for heaven's sake. You know, Tlaloc, the, the club-footed god who has 
a sort of big hammer and 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 uses it to make the sound of thunder. They they also have some very interesting tricks to gods. There is a reasonable theory to be had there that 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 says that you know they may well have exported some of their their ideas from from the places they visited and brought them back and and we of course rewriting their oral tradition many centuries after it was it was uh, it was ongoing assumed that that this was a kind of block of belief it never is belief and and religion is a spectrum you know, there is effectively no difference between mythology and religion except for the time difference and the transition from one to the other takes a very long time and 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 doesn't happen overnight and so we could have, we could have inherited almost anything from previous belief systems and imported it into that scandinavian pantheon and and thereby into our own storytelling who knows this is this is the interesting thing about folklore and, and there is a theory that it will happen to to current religions now the ones that we think of as immutable which of course have mutated quite nicely over the past couple of thousand years there is the, the the very great likelihood that at some point in the future those two will be somebody's mythology and that they will have translated into something else that there's no reason to think that that wouldn't happen well it's one of those things where i think a lot of time and this this could just be me but my my approach to religion and mythology before we started our podcast i thought of this a bit more complexly in college as well but, you know, you kind of think like all of these things are happening in silos, right? That don't interact and have no cultural exchange. So like all of the Greek and Roman gods exist this way, and the Norse gods are this way, and the Aztec gods are this way, and the Thracian. But the reality is they all have cultural exchange and things come and it's fluid. And as a result, you see things that are repeated, which hopefully are repeated because of cultural exchange and not because of a lens. Although that's all there as well. Or colonization. But no, that's, that's absolutely what it is. You know, these things are very much a dialogue. And when we have a civilization as, as active as that of the Scandinavian and the Icelanders, they were very willing to travel and to, to explore other people's beliefs. And, and, you know, one of the things that we, we believe erroneously about the Vikings is that it was all about conquest. Much of it was about trade, actually. And, and trade implies the embracing of another culture's beliefs and the embracing of its language and its customs in order to facilitate trade. And so I think it would be it would be very likely these customs would have been imported. And also people from these other cultures would have come to settle within the, the Scandinavian and Icelandic field because, you know, this is this is what happens when cultures trade. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure and I've learned so much as I always do when I talk to you, Joanne. Thank you so much. Well, it's so nice, so nice for you to host me. Thank you ever so much for that. You're welcome back anytime you want to come back and talk about whatever. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, where I am Joanne Chocolat, or you can look for my website, which is joanneharris.com. Twitter is my natural home. That's where people usually come to ask me questions. But uh, but my website is where people go to find out about my books and where I'm going to be. And of course, this year, things are opening up a little bit. And so I'm actually having face-to-face -face events again, which is quite exciting. So do you have any new books coming out this year? I have got the paperback of A Narrow Door, which is coming out in the UK in late April. So that will be nice. And I'll be doing some touring for that. 
and I'm continuing to to do events with the the Storytime Band, where we're we're telling stories from Honeycomb, but also we've got some pieces based on my novellas. It's been a while since we've done one, so uh, that will be that will be good to start again. Thank you again so much. Um, we'll have links to where everyone can find you and can find your books. And if you've listened to this interview and don't want to go read the Gospel of Loki and the Testament of Loki right now. I don't know how to help you as a human because you really should go read them. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. 